this is what I was just about to say. I don't have I don't have anything wrong with riding at sweet spot or doing a supposed sweet spot workout. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast, powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and unfortunately, I was unable to make this week's show due to losing my voice, but I'm happy to say we had a much welcome guest on the show in my place. Will Pfeiffer is a new coach with Ignition who brings a lot of sports science knowledge and insight, which perfectly fit into this week's topics. The crew dives into the nuances between tempo and sweet spot training, how to incorporate progressive overloading at various times in the season, and whether or not there are any alternative fueling strategies required for females. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. Don't wait until the week before your big race to finally start dialing in your race fueling. Get on top of your nutrition game now by heading over to flowformulas.com and you make sure to use the discount code MATCHBOX when checking out. Oh yeah, and like I mentioned last week, Ignition is currently seeking prospective candidates for the next cohort of Ignition coaches to add to the roster. If you're interested, send an email to info at ignitioncoachco.com with your resume, backstory, and any questions you have about working as a coach with Ignition. And as always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. And if you have any questions for the show, you can drop us an email at matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title of the Matchbox Podcast, or you can head over to Ignition Coach Co and fill out the Matchbox Podcast listener question form. All right, let's get into it. All right. Adam's sick today, so unfortunately, Dizzle's taking the charge. So you guys are going to have to bear with us here. All right, first question I got here is a fairly new listener here, but you guys are my favorite training podcast. All right. we're And by the way, we're probably not even going to get through the questions because I'm going to interrupt so much. But I'm trying to take cycling training a bit more seriously with no crazy ambition by adding some more structure to my training. I'm 31 years old, a male, family of three kids, five years old and under. Whoa. All right. I have a full-time job with very irregular hours. All this makes planning my workouts in advance pretty hard. I'm able to ride pretty much every day, but never know in advance if I'll have 30 minutes or two hours. The way I understand things is that the training to be effective, we need progressive overload. I'm currently in the base period of my training, but I find it hard to increase volume when I can't really plan how much time I get riding. So my question, is it really beneficial to do base training without progressive overload, a.k.a to increase volume with the build season i guess it's less of a problem since it's the intensity of the workout that will increase and not the volume for context i have two a races i'm targeting this year an alpine grand fondo in late august and a 50k gravel race in october i'm probably going to race a bit more but i won't specifically prepare for that hmm. yeah okay matthew matthew from switzerland all right mm. switzerland I mean, this is actually a pretty common problem that people have because most people don't have endless amounts of hours in their week to train, right? Yeah. So they can't progressively overload their volume infinitely because they run into scheduling conflicts. So you're you're not alone here. Also, I should have started with this. We also have a guest on today, Will Pfeiffer. That's how you pronounce it, right? Pfeiffer? Yeah, that's how you pronounce it. Okay. Will is a, an ignition coach. He just started with us a few months ago. Will, do you want to give us a quick intro to let the people know who you are? <laughs> I like how you read the whole question and then you're going to give Will an Yeah, well, intro. that's what Adam does. As soon as he presses record, he just starts reading the first question and I felt like that's what I should do and then I forgot that we have a new guy on the podcast. Okay, so all right. <laughs> I'm, yeah, now, now I'm just nervous. 
Yeah, so I, I just started coaching with Ignition. Um, I've been racing uh, endurance mountain bike and gravel for about eight or nine years now. Um, targeting events like uh, Unbound, BWR, Shando Mountain 100, Gravel Worlds, stuff like or, uh, not Gravel Worlds, uh, Marathon Worlds, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I'm starting to pick up athletes with Ignition and really enjoying hanging out with y'all. You nice. raced the uh, Snowshoe World Cup last year, didn't you? I did, yeah. Team yeah, USA. Yeah, wet gross muddy race on file treads unfortunately (laughs) it was a really cool experience awesome well we're glad to have you on the podcast today uh i guess back to the question (laughs) yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take a stab at this question here yeah i would say that the finer points of structured training um are sometimes obsessed over a little too much when volume is low if somebody is only getting six, eight, ten hours a week, I wouldn't worry too much about the progressive overload. I would get the big rides and get some volume when you can get it. Like, so don't worry too much about the progressive overload. Like, if you've got a day where you can get three or four hours in, just do it. Like, don't worry if that week ends up being bigger than the next week. Like, all the research points to the fact that if you're not getting a whole lot of volume, more volume is what you need for repeatability and endurance and good race performances. Yeah, so I you're com- saying I completely agree with that. So you're saying when this guy does have a random day where it says he's got two plus hours, even if there's a workout on the schedule, like nick that and do the long ride, and then you could do the workout on a different day. <laughs> yeah, I would I will, say. Oh, go ahead, Don. I will say if it's the base season, which is what this guy is talking about, and he's talking about having a hard time progressively overloading in the base season. Uh, yeah, if, if your schedule is really unpredictable and you don't know when you're going to be able to get in a long ride, the answer is ride as, especially because this is a time crunched person. I I wouldn't give this advice to somebody like a professional who's got all the time in the world to train. This is specifically for this person. The answer is ride as much as you possibly can as your schedule allows it to during the base season. I like it. So I, and I've, I've been thinking about this, this a little bit myself. Uh, so if that means there's certain weeks where he only does one intensity workout where, cause we know we always talk about two intensity days a week. That's like the golden standard, get in your two days of intensity, your two workouts, and then, and then endurance on top of that. But so if this guy during the base season ends up only doing one workout a week on occasional weeks, because Oh, he has an open door to go ride for two hours, and he's going to take it. You, you would say that's more beneficial. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times I have athletes only do one intensity workout a week in the base season, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Also, you I mean, can if he, do, if, you can do a uh, intensity workout and then keep riding longer. Yeah, that's, that's what always I was the say. option. If he has the opportunity True. to do two hours, why not still do that workout if he has that on there, and then just tack on endurance to the backside of that. I've heard, I've heard that doing endurance after a workout doesn't have the same effect because your body is in this like, it's in a different state than it would be if you were just doing endurance because you just did a hard workout. So like, there's like certain things a little bit deeper than, than I could maybe understand or explain happening inside your body after you do intensity. Yeah. From a physiologic standpoint, 
if you do intensity at the beginning of a workout, say you've got you know an hour to get your intervals done, and then you go on and do two hours of endurance, you're going to incur more fatigue from that two hours of endurance than you would from standalone two hours of endurance or doing that zone two time before the intervals. And this might be something a little controversial because it's not classically how it's done. Um, for my own workouts and for my athletes, especially during the base season, there'll be times when I put the intervals at the back end of an endurance ride. And I know that there's some sacrifice and quality of the actual intervals, but during base season, I don't care about that quite as much. And I, if I'm pushing their volume, I don't want them to incur that fatigue, right? The, the volume is mm. the intensity. It is the main focus at that point in time. So I'd rather not release all that epinephrine and cortisol and drive that heart rate up early in the workout and then carry that through the workout. I'd rather them stay nice and chill, sub LT1, you know, in zone two, and then do the intervals on the back end and not incur all the fatigue with that. Can you mitigate some of that fatigue, though, if you're actually riding at a lower power than what your zone two typically is and you're just keeping an eye on heart rate? Yeah, probably. I, I guess it depends what part of the season you're in and what you're focusing on. Like base season, I want the zone two to be quality and high volume. And, Fair. you know, like the tempo or threshold or whatever is kind of on the back burner a little bit, in my opinion. Whereas like maybe when you're starting to sharpen up for racing, like the intervals need to be the primary focus. So I guess it just depends where you are. Yeah, when you do those kinds of workouts where you ride for more than an hour before you start your intervals i remember the first time i did that in like i don't know college or something (laughs) it was like really hard to do the intervals i think there's a buildup of like you get comfortable doing an hour and then doing your intervals and maybe do an hour and a half and then you do your intervals and fueling becomes even more important because if you start the workout and you're already depleted on carbs because you've already ridden two hours and you weren't you weren't you know refueling then like all i don't know that there's a there's a learning curve both on the nutrition side and just like it's gonna the intervals are gonna hurt a little more if you rode two hours of endurance before you did them. And I think part of that maybe is is good. Like that that perceived effort being a little bit higher might be a good thing. That's a great point. I don't know if I'd recommend that for a real beginner athlete, and I certainly wouldn't it would be tough for me to say like, okay, I'm going to do VO two at the back end of a big endurance Mm -hmm. ride. But in the base season, if you're doing tempo or, you know, threshold or something like that's probably not quite as big a deal. Yeah. You can do certain intensities at, you know, with fatigue in your legs. But when I talk about VO two with my athletes, I always say, these are not the kind of intervals that you want to do when you're fatigued. Uh, Like they're already hard enough. Don't try to do them fatigued. Um, do you think you guys think we answered the question? Uh, I mean, I think so. I think the general gist is, um, just ride as much as you possibly can in the base season as your schedule allows. And I know that there are some coaches who would argue that because this person has a busy schedule, then they're going to try to keep intensity in the schedule all year to try to make up for that lack of volume. And I think that is a huge mistake. And it's, it's one, a way that athletes generally plateau and uh, the worst, the, the 
the worst case scenario is that it's a way that athlete, athletes overtrain and burn out come midseason. Yeah, I don't want to like sound like I'm contradicting you here, but in his question, he says he basically equates progressive overload with increasing volume. And I think mm-hmm. that he, he's a little off there um, because progressive overload is increasing your load. Uh, mm-hmm. And load isn't just volume. Load is a, an, a, an accumulation of volume and intensity. So let's say he does have the same volume every single week. Um, he can still do progressive overload, overload by adjusting his intensity. Like he could still ride six hours for a three week period and each week could still progressively overload based on how he's structuring his workouts to get more load or other or in other words, a little bit more intensity each week. Um, but I don't want to say that in contradiction to the volume. Cause I think it depends on what phase of the year you're in. Um, at certain times of the year, like Will said, the, the, the you would want that progressive overload to come more from the volume, like in the base season. And then at certain times of the year, you would want that progressive overload to maybe come more from the intensity. Does that make sense? So, so he's naturally going to progressively overload by when, when he gets closer to racing into his build phase, increasing the volume. What I'm saying is a mistake is being, you know, it's it's February, right? And you have maxed out your supposed volume that you can hit. And now you're like, well, I mean, my A race isn't until June, which is so many months away. But I, I have I have no choice but to progressively overload with my intensity. So let's start hmm. let's start focusing on VO2 max right now. Like yeah, that yeah, yeah. that's how you peak in March and then are burned out by your A race in June. Yeah, yeah. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And specifically for him here, I don't know if we had read this part, but his target events are in late August and October. So even more so later than June. Yeah. 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 So he's got to be careful with how much intensity he is doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that comes down to a question of not, I don't know, maybe progressive overload, but a question of periodization. Like how is he, how is he periodizing or, chunking his workouts by blocks leading up to those events and what Dylan was saying, like you don't want to do too much high intensity too early. He's Mm -hmm. six months out from his first a race. So he could do a full, I mean, he could still be an unstructured lifting right now and then do a full three months of base and two months of build. He's really early Uh, question about progressive overload for y'all interested to hear. Like do y'all use, TSS or time and zone, or do you vary it up depending on what you're doing? Like how do y'all measure progressive overload when you build a three week block? Uh, I mean, I, I would say that I take into account multiple factors. So I, a lot of times in the base season, because volume is what we're trying to progressively overload with, I'll just straight up look at hours per week. Um, because most of those hours will be zone two. Uh, if I'm trying to progressively overload, say, tempo sessions in a base block, then maybe maybe for the first session it's 40 minutes of tempo, and then the next week it'll be an hour of tempo, and then the next week it'll be an hour 20 of tempo. Um, if we're into the build and we're trying to progressively overload intensity, then maybe one way to look at that is 
they're doing the same number of hours each week. But if the intensity was going up, the TSS would go up each week. The weekly so, TSS, yeah. So I, I would say that I'm looking at multiple factors, not just one. Given the time of year, a lot of people are doing tempo right now. What do you look at to figure out when you're happy with how much tempo you can do in a workout? Um, I feel like that's pretty I, intuitive. Like I, you got you got to know the athlete. You know, like if I've coached somebody for years and years, like you know, I kind of have an idea of what he or she can handle and maybe it's gotten to the point like i'm actually thinking of like one of the athletes that i've coached for a long time and it's gotten to the point where like now i'm i really think i need to start challenging her a little more and so i'm i am trying to push those upper limits of like how much tempo she can handle but not excessively to where like she's going from last year she did an hour to this year she's gonna do like two plus hours of tempo in one workout you know i would say that the so there there's a kind of dangerous thing, and, and this kind of gets to the debate about whether you should try to go to 100% in your interval workouts or whether you should go to 90 or 95%. Um, I would say that early on in my racing and coaching career, I was the go-to 100% guy. Like if I had a VO2 max workout or a threshold workout, I was trying, I was trying to get to the point where I couldn't do another one. Um, I gave it everything I had on this workout. Whereas I think more in the more recent years, probably the last two years or three years, I've, I've been more of the, in a workout, go to 90 to 95%. Don't go to a hundred percent in a workout. And the thing, the thing with tempo is that it's at an intensity where I, I have actually done this before. If you go to a hundred percent in a tempo workout, you could, if you're a fit athlete, you could hypothetically do hours at tempo. I've done five hours of tempo in one workout before. Um, and the problem with that is it's so fatiguing. It's, I mean, it's, it, it takes multiple days to recover from a workout like that. So the point where I, I kind at this point, I kind of think it's counterproductive. Um, so, so now you only do four hours of tempo. <laughs> I don't even do that. I, I would say that <laughs> I would say you can slowly build up, but a, a tempo workout will almost, I, I 90% for a tempo tempo workout is still probably too high. I would say most of the time, people should probably finish a tempo workout and feel like they went to, I don't know, 80%. So when I'm prescribing tempo workouts, I'll set up a whole bunch of intervals for somebody, you know, whatever, a whole bunch of 15, 20, 30 minute intervals, something like that. And tell them if your heart rate goes into more or less into zone four, it depends on the athlete, but basically if your heart rate drifts into zone four, cut the interval do five mm-hmm. to ten minutes in zone two and then start back the next one and do that until you reach x number of minutes in zone mm. uh, because i really don't want them you know the the tempo power is one thing but if your heart rate drifts into zone four you're in, you're now incurring fatigue as if you're in a threshold workout because that's the work your body is doing yeah um, and that's not fatigue that i want somebody to incur while i'm also trying to push their volume up maybe as high as they've ever gone and you know a given year a week or something um i really
really like doing that to keep athletes fresh. Like Dylan's talking about, like you don't want to be coming out of base one or two, you know, and be cooked trying to roll into build. Man, what a good this coach. Is, this We're is so like glad the, we hired, uh, so glad we hired Will. Dude, look at him. Adjusting our guts real hard, on the, Drew. That's so good, dude. I, this is like, like spot the spot on, man. That's so good. This is like the Norwegian approach to tempo. So yeah. I I I will I would say that most coaches are not thinking about whether or not heart rate or I would say more importantly blood lactate, but almost no one is measuring their blood lactate while they're doing a tempo workout. But well, heart, you heart don't have to. Yeah, heart, heart rate, rate and blood lactate is all you need. Yeah, they're 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 high. You know, they both increase together. So mm. the this is this is what the this is kind of what the Norwegian approach is. Is that they are very strict about what they don't call it tempo because, uh, or maybe maybe they do. I don't know. They're mostly runners and triathletes, and runners do have tempo workouts. So. But they're very strict about staying in zone two in the three zone model when they have a zone two workout. So we're not talking about zone two endurance. We're talking about tempo sweet spot. And they ensure that they don't go above their second lactate turn point by constantly measuring their blood lactate during these workouts. But you can you can also do that with heart rate, too. Um, kind of like what Will's talking about. So to ensure that you are not going overboard with the amount of tempo that you're doing in a workout, make sure that your heart rate is never getting to the point where it's above your, you know, threshold heart rate, your, your, your second lactate turn point heart rate. So this is actually a great segue into one of our other questions. Uh, I'll go ahead and read it. And then if we have more that we want to elaborate on, we can. It says, could you discuss the ignition approach to tempo versus sweet spot? What are the percentage ranges of FTP for each when you would prescribe sweet spot versus tempo? Say if tempo is defined as 76 to 90%, would a good starting target be 84% of FTP right in the middle of the zone, progressing towards completing the intervals at the highest intensity possible, wherever that might be. Is there ever a time where you would prescribe higher sweet spot work at 87 to 95% of FTP, or are sweet spot workouts essentially just crappy FTP intervals? (laughs) Thanks, Kyle. P.S. Congrats, Drew, on the solid result at Cyclocross Pass. Glad to see all of this natural-born talent paying off. I didn't make that part up. Uh, He's he's asking about tempo, sweet spot. This is my hot take on tempo versus sweet spot. You're getting... You are getting if you're worried about tempo versus sweet spot, you are getting way too into the weeds with this. Like calm down. <laughs> Do like you don't need to differentiate between tempo and sweet spot. They're basically the same thing. Like s- sometimes you can go a little bit higher in your in so if we're talking about the three zone model, right? Zone 1 is your endurance and below zone. Zone two is your tempo and sweet spot. And then zone three is everything above your FTP. It's like you don't need to get that that finely detailed about where you are in your zone two on a zone two workout, you know? The only time I'll actually program, and I even call it high tempo just because I don't like the term sweet spot, is in that transitional period before 
we go into like a rest week before we do um, a threshold build following tempo. And I'll say 80 to 90%, but it's really, I don't think that's a zone that you specifically need to train. If it was that important, they would make, you know, that would be your zone four between zone three tempo and zone five being threshold at that point. Like I, I don't see the benefit of high tempo. Like why, why not do at that point then high threshold before you go into VO2? Why not do high zone two before you go into tempo? And sometimes people do prescribe those things, but like, you know, this clearly isn't a different coaching company's podcast. If you get my drift. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was about to say, there's a reason we don't, we don't mention the word sweet spot around here. It's because we've got beef with the sweet spot people. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I mean I don't have anything wrong with riding at your Actually, supposed. Let me, let me sweet rephrase that. We don't have beef. Dylan has beef. I don't, I don't, this is what I was just about to say. I don't have I don't have anything wrong with riding at sweet spot or doing a supposed sweet spot workout. It's just I that sweet spot workouts fit into pyramidal training if you're if you're doing if the distribution is correct amongst your training week. Uh, I do have a problem with doing sweet spot workouts every single day, like some, some coaching platforms prescribe. But I, I I guess what I was getting at is that there is no need to differentiate between tempo and sweet spot. In my mind, they are the same zone. Yeah. If you're picking through one or 2% differences in power, probably not having enough fun in training. And that's really like, more important. And Keep what will joy. just what will just said, if you're riding sweet spot up like like what I would think of sweet spot would be what what kind of what Caitlin said, your upper tempo. I think that's what people think of, like right around ninety percent of FTP. Um if you're riding that, it's gonna be a lot more likely that your heart rate is going to drift up into that threshold zone. And to to Kyle's point here, at that point, why not just do legit threshold intervals like if you're gonna do are you gonna do crappy threshold intervals or or tempo like it kind of depends on what what phase you're in like if it's the base season then you should probably lower the intensity a bit not let that heart rate drift into threshold zone and focus like he said right in the middle of like tempo zone and if that means you have to decrease the power a little bit to make sure the heart rate doesn't creep up into threshold i would say do that rather than just pin the power at sweet spot and let the heart rate go nuts um, at that point, you're probably getting to like you're you're training something that you shouldn't be training yet. I yeah, I will just reiterate that I see no problem with riding at sweet spot as people as people define sweet spot, meaning riding at ninety percent or upper tempo. I don't see any problem with that. That's fine. I just don't see the need to differentiate between tempo and sweet spot zone. Is all I'm saying. I think people thought the magic of sweet spot was that you can basically do threshold work without incurring as much fatigue when we just, you know, five minutes ago, we were just talking about how you can go too deep with too much tempo. So Mm -hmm. it's really no different. Yeah, I mean, it's really a um, it's almost like if you if you stay at any zone for long enough, there's a point at which you are incurring massive amounts of fatigue uh if you stay at zone two for long enough your heart rate can drift up to the point where you're you're no longer in your zone two heart rate you've actually 
you're actually a or I'm talking about zone, now I'm talking about zone two in a five zone model. I know these get so confusing, <laughs> but your endurance zone, you can drift to a point where you're actually no longer in your endurance zone after you've been riding in your endurance zone for five to ten hours. All right, let's <clears throat> let's take this to the extreme. Let's say I have a tempo workout. I'm going to do 60 minutes of time and zone. At the end of that workout, if I if I had done those 60 minutes of tempo at the very low end, 76% of FTP, versus if I had done that workout at 90%, both of those are a tempo workout. Are you saying that that's like the same thing or cuz that's a huge difference. Like that's that for me, that's like a 50 watt difference between my 76 to 90%. Like that's a, by the end of the workout, that's, those are two different workouts, right? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying those are the same thing. So should I just put it in the middle of those two things? I mean, I mean, you kind of have to. Where do you back check with your heart rate? It kind of, yeah. I mean, you can back check with your heart rate, but it kind of depends on what, you know, what type of workout you're doing. If you were doing, say a shorter tempo workout where you're not doing as much time in zone, maybe you could go a little bit higher in your zone. If you're doing a long tempo workout with more time in zone, maybe you'd go a little bit lower in your zone. Mm, Okay. Makes sense. Got it. I think the point to remember is tempo, sweet spot, whatever you want to call it. You're just trying to do work between your first and second lactate threshold because when you're doing your endurance work, it's a muscular effort, right? Your cardiovascular system and all the compensatory mechanisms aren't having to clear lactate, right? It's not really being produced. So during base season, you're just will, trying to will. get work between lactate the first and second lactate. Always being produced. Always. Even when you're sitting barely, on the couch. Barely in endurance zone. It doesn't really <laughs> register. But yeah. but basically you're trying to do work that's above your endurance work to make your body start clearing lactate and getting good at that and increasing the time in that zone, you know, across a three week period. So that then when you get a threshold and you get a build, you're, you're building that foundation, you're ready for it. Like the, the percentage differences aren't, it's not worth getting freaked out about. Just put it in the middle, rack up time and zone. Don't let your heart rate drift. Good to go. Yeah. I like that approach. You know, Scott, uh, I know that Scott doesn't always come off, and Scott's not on this podcast, but I am referencing Scott McGill from the Bonk Bros. I know he doesn't always come off as, like, the most cerebral cycling coach, but he he sometimes has pearls of wisdom, and what he would probably (laughs) say in this scenario if he was here is just ride your freaking bike more. (laughs) and that is the correct answer honestly it's the correct answer to the first question and the second question true that's why scott is one of our best coaches (laughs) i don't know scott personally but it seems like he's very smart and tries to come off as a little more bro-ish than Mm. than he actually is because he's a damn good rider (laughs) i would say that's correct yeah and according to his retention rates with his athletes, he's doing something right. Because, like, when he gets an athlete, he keeps his athletes. And mm-hmm. so he's doing something right for sure. Um, all right, you guys want to do one more? There's one more short, shortest question. Um, yeah. says, good afternoon. Asking for my wife. Oh, sure you are, buddy. Um, 
<laughs> we are both competitive age groupers in marathon off-road cycling. It is well known with a glucose fructose mix, racers can be racing with 90 plus grams of carbs per hour. You don't hear much about what the females are doing, and my wife wants to know, should she be training 90 grams for our next event? Kind regards, Kim. Mm. Kim is the husband. As far as I know, go ahead, Caitlin. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, as far as I know, there's no, uh, at least I haven't read any research, um, on how men versus women metabolize the type of sugar. Um, I think that's, I think we metabolize it the same. Um, so as far as like glucose, fructose, yeah, that's fine. Um, the 90 grams, uh, as well, like if she's trained to handle 90, that's not, that's a significant amount, 90 per hour. So, um, yeah, if she's trained to handle that, that's, that's what she should be doing. So you're saying there's not really, as of right now, there's not a huge, uh, discrepancy between male and female and carb intake. Mm hmm. Okay. I haven't read up. I don't. I don't know. So at all. I, I, I don't think that the ratio of glucose to fructose would change between males and females. But um, one interesting thing to note, and this is just in general, this isn't a, a blanket rule that applies to everyone. But women do utilize more fat as a fuel source in general than men do, which means that. Uh, Theoretically, on average, women could potentially get away with consuming less carbs per hour than men would because they're utilizing more fat. Um, I think that holds true even at like high intensity races like a crit or something. Um, Because I could see that in the the case for like – Again, I mean it it very much depends on the person, right? Because even even if we're talking about within – males or within females it very there's this is a bell curve right it it depends mm-hmm. on the person um i just think i think the bell curve is slightly it, they're not completely overlapping when you compare males to females on this the the female bell curve is shifted from the male bell curve in terms of how much fat they're utilizing when they're exercising now just anecdotally i have talked to endurance uh uh female endurance racers who have you know i i asked him (laughs) this was like after a hundred mile mountain bike race where i bonked and i was talking about like oh man those aid stations like there weren't enough of them i barely got enough fuel and i remember this female racer that won her race told me that she consumed one gel and one bottle of mix in her entire eight hour race and won the race Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> right so that's that's one extreme and i'm not recommending that people do that but if i if i were to try to make it through a hundred mile mountain bike race with one bottle of mix and one gel uh i would I, it probably wouldn't take me eight hours it'd probably take me 10 hours because i'd be so bonked you know <laughs> i feel like even that's an anomaly like i couldn't i would bonk for yeah sure. and i'm not i'm not saying most <laughs> women can do that i'm yeah. i'm saying that's 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 one extreme but um i i think that you know uh, generally people are pushing 
the grams of carbs per hour as high as they possibly can right now. And that has probably led to increases in performance in cycling in recent years. Um, but the, the flip side to that is that if you're experiencing GI issues, I, uh, this person didn't mention GI issues. I don't know if they're experiencing GI issues, but that is what happens when you go too high with the grams of carbs per hour. And that's also a huge, that's a, that's a performance detriment. So don't, don't go that high, find the sweet spot. So to speak to that, if you're looking for a product and here I sit, you know, wearing a flow formulas hat, there are plenty of products that do this. Make sure it's got maltodextrin and fructose in it in the correct five to four ratio. And then the other thing is 90 is a, a nice general target, but it's, it's basically 90 based on a normal size male rider with ideal body weight. So what I'll tell athletes is use 1.3 grams per kilo per hour, which is really nerdy and really specific. <laughs> but if you're a hundred kilos and you take in 90, it's not enough, right? Because that the thought process is the more service area you have in your GI tract, the more you can absorb per hour. And so like I'm 63 kilos, I generally load bottles to 80 80 grams, right? That would not be sufficient for one of my riders who's like 97 kilos. They might bonk late in a race. Um, so kind of keep, keep that in mind that if you're a bigger rider, you can definitely take in more. If you're smaller, you probably want to take in less so that what Dylan's talking about doesn't happen. You don't take in too much and end up with race gut, you know, seven hours in or whatever. The service area, the service area of your GI tract. That's a new the, one. The I, surface area. Yeah. Surface <laughs> area. I think well, he said surface. You think about was, it like, yeah, so think about area. like, you know, I'm, I'm five, eight, 63 kilos, right? I don't know how big Matt Beers is, but he's a big dude, right? He's a freaking hoss. He should not be intaking the same amount of carbohydrates in a race as I am, right? He mm-hmm. literally just has more intestines running around in his abdomen mm-hmm. than I do, and he can take up more carbs per hour. So he might be able to take in, you know, 115 grams of carbs per hour, whereas I'm taking in 80. If I took in 115, you know, halfway through Shando Mountain 100 or whatever, like my stomach is going to be screaming at me and I'm probably going to be puking on the side of the road. Whereas if he took in 80, he might bonk, you know, so it is really rider specific with that. Yeah. And I feel like it's also at least one thing I would take into consideration is they said marathon offered cycling. Now that can mean a whole lot of different things, but typically let's just say marathon mountain bike, that's typically around 100k how long is that going to take you and then how long are you going to spend in different zones we know at the elite level they're going to be spending a lot of time at threshold significant you know over climbs starts sprint finish significant time at threshold potentially anaerobic capacity um but you know not to say that as an age group athlete you're not going to be spending significant time over zone four um but i think it's worth taking uh, a look at the breakdown of time and zones in previous races and if you're spending a whole lot of time at zone two 90 grams per hour is a lot and i don't you know you might be better off you know not um taking as many gels it might be easier on your digestive tract it might be um better to take in more solids if you're used to training with more solids um so also would you agree that 
looking at that breakdown of wh- how what intensity you're actually racing at is plays a part in then determining grams per hour. Yeah, that's such an awesome point. I didn't even think about that. I'm I'm thinking a lot of like zone three in one of those races, but yeah, if mm-hmm. somebody is staying in endurance zone to try and survive that hundred K race in nine or ten hours. Yeah, that's an awesome point. What about the flip side? If you're doing a one hour crit and you're just maxed out, <laughs> does that mean I should take in more carbs? If you're doing a one hour crit, you're gonna be extremely glycogen dependent during that race. Right, because you don't necessarily want to be diverting blood to your GI tract to absorb carbs. Hmm. I would highly recommend taking a bottle with the better part of an hour's worth of carbs in it and finishing that bottle in the 40 to 20 minute range before your race starts so that those carbs are already swimming around in your blood by the time you're ready to roll. You don't want to be absorbing carbs during a race that's going to involve a whole lot of zone five work because it takes hmm. blood in your GI tract to absorb that. And you want that blood to be flowing past your muscles, not your intestines. I will add, it is helpful to have carbs in your bottle because of the brain. Because when you drink carbs, there's a sensor in your mouth that tricks your brain into like loosening up or like using, uh, riding harder. Let's just say that your brain will let your body ride harder when you're drinking carbs, even though those carbs aren't going to make it all the way to your muscles by the end of that crit, your brain is going to loosen up and say, you can go harder because of the carbs that you're intaking. They've like, they've, they've shown this with like, I'm not saying do this. Don't do the whole mouth rinsing thing and then spit your (laughs) right in the middle of a crit, just spit it all out. You can swallow it, but don't let it, but don't do a super concentrated, like, you know, 30 60 grams of carbs in your bottle that's going to be enough to where it won't upset or shouldn't upset your gi but but it gets that um brain benefit that makes sense you know what i'm talking about will right yeah there was a study that tested maximal sprint effort after people had swished and spit as yeah. you're saying basically they didn't take in any carbs right but when your tongue senses when those taste buds are hit, basically your brain is preparing for the fact that, yes, I've mm-hmm. got more glucose coming. I can do more now. And it doesn't really change the physiology of what's going on other than just allowing for more effort. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we missed a part of the question. A really uh-huh. important part. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if you saw that last little block underneath. Uh, do you vary your it. intake? Do you vary your intake based on menstrual cycle and hormone fluctuations? Uh, I take in more fat slash protein during certain times of your cycle. As far as during an event, no. Um, Dylan can back me up. There's really no research to show that taking protein during your event is beneficial. Um, And you certainly don't want to be taking in fats. You know, that's just going to be a recipe for disaster. Mainly because you're not going to be able to digest those, right? Yeah. So also uh, taking in fat and protein slows the absorption of carbohydrates. So Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend during a race, even a little bit before and a little bit after the race, not taking in any other macromolecules like fat or protein or fiber because it will limit the amount of absorption you can do with carbohydrates. Uh, I would really recommend just sticking to pure carbohydrates and pretty simple carbohydrates like, you know, drink mix or whatever gels stuff like that 
As far as off the bike nutrition around your menstrual cycle, we could get into a whole podcast, which we totally should. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, you, your, I hate the term macros, but your macros uh, should look a little differently depending on what phase of your cycle you are in. <clears throat> nice. I'll sum it up. I what I like the my approach to carbs is what gets measured gets managed. So last year after every race, I would actually before every race, I would put X amount of carbs in my bottles, X amount of carbs in my pockets, and then after the race, I would track, okay, did I drink both of those bottles? How many gels did I take? Add all that up, divide by how much time I raced, and then get to the number of how many carbs per hour I ingested during the race. A lot of times it ended up naturally just being right around a hundred grams for me and I never had any GI distress. And so I know now I know because I've measured it and I managed it last year that I can do a hundred grams per hour because I didn't have any GI and I did that at multiple races. So what I could do this year, and this is what seems to be the trend in endurance sports is basically the more carbs that you can intake without GI distress. That's the like uh, that's the, what's the word? Um, disclaimer, uh, it's going to be better. So maybe this year I push that up to 110 or 120, but I keep track of it at every race or every hard workout. And I'm, I'm noting, okay, I did have some GI distress, so I need to back it off and go back to a hundred or whatever. But, but the main thing that I'm saying is you need to measure these things. You're not going to, if you just kind of guess, well, the difference between 80 and a hundred that you like if you don't if you're not measuring it and keeping track of it that could skew the whole thing and now you're you don't know what you're intaking so i think it's helpful to keep track of that stuff cool all right i think that's it it's a good podcast we didn't need adam anyways (laughs) right (laughs) will thanks for being on will is an ignition coach he's looking for new athletes if you want to work with will Sign up for coaching right now, ignitioncoachco.com. Thanks for having me, Drew. Yep. Glad to have you. Thanks, you guys. See you in the next one. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title, the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn more about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! Ready to start working with a coach that'll make you faster? It's easy. Just go to the Ignition Coach Co. website and fill out our athlete form and we'll connect you to the best suited coach for the job. You'll jump on a free consultation, determine if it's a good fit, and determine a start date. If you don't feel the vibes with that coach, well then no sweat. We'll connect you to another coach that might be better. And then it's off to the races, or at least off to the training for the races. Don't wait any longer. Sign up today.